Listener Production. Car Sales acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It's the showroom, new cars, classifieds, cool innovations and stuff happening in the automotive world that makes for good conversation. Parked at Listener, powered by car sales, Greg Rust with you for this episode, along with the Director of Content, Editor-in-Chief, the man with the world's biggest business card. Hello, Mike Sinclair. Hello, Greg Rust. How are you? I'm all right. What did you drive in today? Come on. I drove a Tiguan R Grid Edition, which essentially is a Tiguan R with less shit in it. It has a cool little badge to tell you it's a Tiguan R, doesn't it? And what it doesn't have is a whole bunch of electronic things that need semiconductors. There's that word again. There you go. So, yeah, still gets plenty of good kit, though, and it's a ripper. 235 kilowatts goes like a good thing. Now, did I see an op-ed column by you, and I think we'll talk about this a little later um, in this edition of the pod, and we covered it a bit from a headline standpoint in our sister EV pod called What's Under the Bonnet, which you can find on the car sales site or, or here at Listener. But you reckon there is kind of more beneath the decision by by Tesla to, to bail out of right-hand drive production, don't you? Well, it's bailing out of right-hand drive production with its flagship models. And I have an inkling there's probably more to it than just simply losing the Australian marketplace. Okay. I asked before about what you drove in. What about stuff that you've got coming up in the next month or two that you're going to get behind the wheel of as well? Sometimes this job is quite taxing and it's quite draining. <laughs> I do have to go shortly to the south of France to drive the replacement for the Aston Martin DB11, but, you know, I'll, I'll take the hit. Now, coming up in this edition of the showroom, the new Amarok, but this time we're going to chat with the head of VW Commercial. So more on the collab with Ford, why you'd buy an Amarok perhaps instead of a Ranger, and what they're hoping to achieve sales-wise here in Australia. Our major launch is the Porsche Cayenne, and Martin Pettendy tells us why it might just be the best SUV he's ever driven. We're going to fire up Unpopular Opinions, the segment that tends to upset a few people. Plus, we've got the latest auto news that you need to know right now. That's all to come here on the showroom. This month's major launch is the Porsche Cayenne. Hard to believe it was 20 years ago that the Cayenne- 20 years? Yeah, 20 years. And it made something of a controversial debut, I think, back then. Um, Now accounts for a significant portion of Porsche sales as well. Now, car sales managing editor Martin Petty has been at the launch in Austria, not Australia. Hello, mate. How are you? G'day, Rusty. Good, thanks. From the review vid- Beautiful snow-capped mountains in the background. Gets all the good gigs, Rusty. Yeah, terrible trip. Looked like a terrible trip. Where exactly in Austria were you? Oh, look, we were in the most famous part, the Tyrol, the Austrian Alps. I've got to say, I was on a plane longer than I was on the ground, so don't be too jealous. Tell us what's new, you know, what we've seen and read so far from you. It looks like there's a fair bit that's different. There is, Rusty, and unlike you've probably read elsewhere, it's not a midlife facelift. It's a late-life facelift for the third generation launched in 2017. Uh, And you're right, I was one of those uh, knockers 20 years ago that um, cried foul when a a sports car maker as hallowed as Porsche made an SUV. 
But the fact is, in the last 20 years, it's pretty much bankrolled the development of a lot of sports cars we know and love, like the 911. Last year, it was 30% of sales, so Porsche's top seller, and you can't argue with those numbers. And that'd be globally 30%. It's probably higher in Australia. It is higher in Australia, um, and KN does outsell the Macan, the smaller one that came along in 2014, despite being more expensive. So this car, as you say, late life facelift, um, what's changed? A lot more than it looks like, and I'm not being a Porsche apologist, but they have pretty much touched every part of that car that matters. So new front and rear design, a new dashboard with a Taycan-style digital instrument panel, the option of a passenger-side touchscreen for the first time, but a full chassis makeover. So there's new steel springs for the V6 models, new air suspension for the KN S and upwards, the most popular models. Pricing is up as well, five grand on the KN S. It's a Porsche. It's a Porsche. They're not up as much as the 911. Can we touch on handling, Marty, just a bit? Because I think, you know, maybe I'm not paraphrasing your words from the story correctly, but you were very impressed with the handling, weren't you? I was, Rusty, and I always have been. And as you'd expect from Porsche, um, it's one of the best handling SUVs in the world. That said, when the Macan came along, lighter, still powerful, uh, many of us, including me, said that superseded the KN as the world's best handling SUV. And that's notwithstanding many new competitors, some on the same platform, like Volkswagen Touareg, Audi Q7, Lamborghini Urus, Bentley Bentayga, they're all basically the same SUV underneath, but nobody manages to make it handle or ride as well as Porsche. There's one rider on that, and there's many expensive chassis options, including adjustable anti-roll bars, rear-wheel steering, all expensive options. And I can't tell you what it's like to drive without them because all the cars we drove were fully loaded. But in, in top-spec form, I don't think there's another full-size SUV that handles as well as a can or rides, for that matter. That's high praise from you, Marty, because I know how hard you are on cars in terms of <laughs> in terms of, of looking at, at those sorts of key factors. More generally, what did you get out of Porsche in terms of discussions with them? Where are they going? Are there more EVs coming? Are they going to, you know, 911 going to get an electric motor? What's happening? There's probably four Porsche EVs by in the next five years or so, including the Macan next next year. The 718 mid-engined, so-called mid-engined, you know, Cayman and Boxster, although they will still be available with petrol power. Thank, thank crikey for that. <laughs> There'll be an all-new flagship SUV, electric only, from about 2026. But I think we're going to see a few more generations yet of traditional boxer-powered 911s, and what will save it is synthetic fuel, which they call e-fuel, carbon neutral, made in Tasmania um, from a few years' time, already been made in Chile. If um, the European Parliament allows it, that's what will save Porsche and potentially other Volkswagen Group products. There, there is a saying from, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but uh, Dr. Well, Ferry Porsche basically said, uh, surely the last car built on earth will be a sports car. It may well be a 911 by the sounds of it. Which will be appropriate, won't it? You know, Ferry Porsche made a 911 out of a Volkswagen uh, Beetle. It could well be the last Porsche standing and there's worse things than the 911 to, to look forward to. Maybe one day I'll be able to afford it. 
Not if I'm still working for you. <laughs> <laughs> Did you sneak a schnitzel on your way home on your brief little venture? I, I actually snuck two in. I made a beeline for the bar at the hotel and had one for breakfast when I arrived. And it was the last meal I had when I uh, before I got off the plane at the airport. Why am I not surprised? Martin Pettendy, well done. Thank you for coming on the pod and telling us all about the new KN today. Thanks, Rusty. Cheers. Just on Marty's point there about KN2, I think it is due for release in Australia in September, and you can see his video review and read his report, of course, on the car sales website. Unpopular opinions time now. This little segment is about stuff that winds us up on the roads with rules, designs defined, stupid decisions and dumb bits of driving. Uh, tell us if you've got an unpopular opinion. We'd love to know more about it. Podcast at carsales.com.au is the place to go. Righto, sinkers, hit us with your unpopular opinion this month. Motorsport is dangerous and it needs to stay that way. Here, here. Firstly, I would say that there's obviously tragic when anybody gets hurt, either doing what they love or spectating at motorsport or those sorts of things. But we have a situation in this country now where we have major events, iconic events that are, may not go ahead because of I guess the inability for our governing body and stakeholders to understand that motorsport is dangerous and there is some risk involved in it. In their defence, wouldn't you also say sometimes we as fans, as whatever you want to call it, I'm speaking more broadly, we just need to pause and, and, and accept a bit of that too. I would hate to think in a global perspective, in a, in a crazy litigious PC world that we are now in, that we might one day perhaps lose an Isle of Man TT or stuff that's going on at the Nürburgring might ultimately get shut down. Yes, it's dangerous. I don't want to see anybody maimed or hurt. I don't want that. But the reality is we do have to accept this game comes with a bit of danger and it has done for decades. Absolutely. And look, um, you know, in almost every case, you know, spectators are well looked after. There are, of course, events that require a fair bit of common sense from spectators. And we're looking at, you know, one in particular with the, as we record this, the, you know, the Fink race in Central Australia that may not go ahead for cars, in fact, may not go ahead overall because of a, a tragic spectator death. But we've also got that iconic event, one I've done eight times, which is Target Tasmania, which has had a number of fatalities over the last few years, some of them uniquely um, tragic um, but also not necessarily a fault of the sport as itself, you know, and that may not continue and that will be, that will be terrible if that event basically dies. I've had the pleasure of covering both. I think they're both outstanding events from a sporting perspective, but, but importantly, they actually do very good things for the local economies as well. So we actually don't want to lose those, in my opinion. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, Rusty, you're Captain Sensible when it comes to motorsport and many other things. <laughs> I can't imagine anything is bubbling up in that brain of yours that will be unpopular. Do you know what? They uh, they call me Safety Sam. Did you know that? That's a nickname I've had since high school. True story. My unpopular opinion this month, Sinkers, is your minimum licence hours should include time in a truck. I like that one. People will probably think, you know, uh, in some states you've got to chalk up 120 hours. Some of it has to be nighttime driving. Some of it has to be logbooked in the wet and so on. 
I work in various capacities with the with the actor Shane Jacobson, who has got a truck license, who will occasionally jump behind the wheel of one of his um, his his film trucks and and drive it somewhere. He often tells me frightening stories of trying to pull those things up when people dart in front of you. We don't have a great appreciation for the difficulties involved in driving those machines, the spatial awareness you need. I, I just think being in a rig, in a big rig for a couple of hours alongside a seasoned truck driver so you can see and experience that with a little bit of testing at the end of it of what you learnt might actually help us. I, and I know a way you can achieve that. You don't even need a real truck or a real truck driver. There is an Australian company producing, it's called Modem Simulation, which is producing some amazing training aids for um, stevedore companies and for heavy heavy vehicle training companies where you could put a simulator in school and you could put kids behind the wheel of a B-double in traffic conditions relatively easily with literally a click of a mouse. There's no excuse for it not being done. Agreed. And and some of that technology would actually really connect and resonate with those young emerging drivers too. So that's uh, that's the kind of thing we should absolutely be embracing. hot topic this week is the all-new Volkswagen Amarok, which has got, Rusty, not entirely all Volkswagen parts in it. (laughs) You're a brave man bringing this up. I think when Bruce Newton went to South Africa, it was a little bit of a tender subject. Now, since then, our Fiantor's also driven it domestically. We've got him on the line. Before we actually speak to one of the team from VW Australia a bit more about it and their ambitions um, for the new generation Amarok. Fian, put it in in uh, perspective for everyone. What was it like to drive? It was quite impressive. Um, they've done a very good job differentiating it from the Ford Ranger and obviously uh, it's a little touchy subject because it is based on most of the hardware from the Ford Ranger, but they've made it a Volkswagen, it does feel a little bit more premium, um, even in the way it drives. They've done some some nice things with the suspension and the steering, and they've got some intriguing models in there too that are very different from pretty much every other ute manufacturer out there. By and large, I think it's going to be very, very popular, probably their top-selling vehicle, I would argue, in Australia. And I think yeah, we're going to see a lot of lot of happy customers with this this vehicle, even though it is probably one of the more expensive utes out there. You've talked about it being premium. Were they mindful, do you reckon, about Mercedes X-Class and what unfolded there? And was that a, a factor and an opportunity? I might jump in there. I can say it and Fiend can't. There was nothing premium about the Mercedes X-Class. <laughs> they basically put a Mercedes badge on a Navara. It was once over lightly. I think it's fair to say this vehicle is done a whole lot differently, Fiend. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It does have its own um, look and feel. And look, yeah, there are certain elements, you know, little things like the gear shifter and, and, and some other elements you do go, okay, that's clearly from the Ranger. But by and large, I think there's enough Volkswagen DNA in this that if you're already, uh, you know, a Volkswagen fan, you're probably going to really uh, enjoy what they've done here. It's pretty impressive. Why don't we bring uh, VW's Head of Commercial Vehicles, Ryan Davies, into this conversation. Welcome to the showroom. Thanks, Rusty. Good good to be here. It's great to have you with us. It, it probably, I think, um, and, and Fian will have a bit more to say in, in this conversation, but it might be worth letting the audience know uh, how far back the actual kind of collaboration began. 
Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting question because uh, this is something that's been in the making for about four years. Our design team has been based in Melbourne for about a four-year period working on the, on the project uh, in conjunction with our collaboration partner. So during that time, they've obviously had uh, a lot of influence into the things that that we, we deem important in this project and, um, you know, uh, we're pretty happy with the outcome. You know, clearly Volkswagen has had to put some Volkswagen-ness into Amarok. What, from your point of view, would make me buy an Amarok over um, the donor vehicle, the Ranger? Well, I think you can see from the outset that the, the two cars are completely different. Uh, if you look at the design elements of, of the Amarok, you'll see that they're distinctly different to, um, to, to the collaboration partner. We, we've gone for a far more premium uh, look in terms of the design and styling. And what you see uh, are, the, are the elements of, uh, of Volkswagen design uh, that have come through, not, not only in the Amarok, but they're, they're I guess, uh, part of the, the language that's coming through in, in, in Volkswagen design overall. And when you move throughout the car, whether it um, be, you know, to, to the rear of the car, you, you'll start to see elements that the, what, what we would classify as non-negotiables where we wanted to make sure that those same little bits and pieces that were in the, the previous Amarok continue through. And we're talking about things like being able to fit a pallet in between, in between the wheel arches or having a V6 engine, uh, having four motion. These are the things that... You know, we classified earlier in the in partnership that we thought were non-negotiable. So they had to come through into the new car. And when you when you look in the interior of the car, sitting in it in that seat is was always going to be a a really key part of the project for us, making sure that the that when you stepped into into the new Amarok, it felt like a Volkswagen. And I'm certain that our our designers and our and our team have been able to achieve that through the materials that they've used bolstering the seats, the way that the, the steering wheel feels, the look and the feel of the overall interior of the car. Uh, you know, you can jump out of a Volkswagen Golf R, out of a Tiguan, jump into our car, and it's a familiar place. It's something that you're used to and something that has uh, Volkswagen DNA at its core. You mentioned earlier the um, the design team uh, spent a lot of time here in Australia. Um, how important is the Aussie market for this car? Obviously, you're, you're, you're trying to tailor that design a little bit to Aussie taste there. Is that is that the idea by basing the, the design team here? Well, I'd like to think so. But the reality is, is that's where we had to have them based because that's as part of the relationship, that's where they needed to be uh, based. But um, for what it's worth, I think having uh, the most important market globally for the new Amarok as the, uh, the design centre for it is, is is fitting because we've had you know some uh, a great number of people based here and having them live and breathe in our environment and see just how important the dual cab uh, segment is for Australians in Australia was uh, enabled them to to really take that and and sort of squash that into into the into the new car so you know we're pleased that they were able to to be here and they've seen just how much Aussies love love utes and then they've I believe that they've encapsulated a ute that not only meets the standards of the Australian public but also does it in a Volkswagen way. I think that the outcome over the test of time will will show that it's a great result for us and consumers are already warming to it in record numbers. So it's not just me saying that, it's the, the general public that's, that's uh, getting on board as well. More than a little bit of Aussie osmosis jumping into that car it's it's important right you know uh, one of our head designers 
uh, when he first came to Australia, uh, he makes a joke about it, but it's quite funny that, you know, he, he's, he's come from, from headquarters and his kids were quite young. And, um, you know, he's based here for four years, but his children now speak with an Australian accent rather than a German <laughs> accent. So, you know, I guess our accent can be a little bit annoying to, to lots of people around the world, but, you know, that's something that's not going to wash off very quickly for his children. So uh, he's taking a little piece of Australia home with him as well. I can see the advertising campaign now, you know, the, the German ute with an Aussie accent. That's right. That's right. So we're, we're quite proud of that. And, um, you know, we're pleased that, that we had such a great team working on it and they're, and they're so passionate. And, you know, th- these things are, are, can often be difficult in how uh, partnerships operate. And, um, you know, having, having a passionate team was key to getting a great outcome. Ryan, one, one of the things in, the, in new cars at the moment is supply. Fien and I, I think we agree that this car will be a, a real success for Volkswagen. But how are you going to go supply-wise? Are you going to be able to deliver vehicles to people? Yeah, look, the the early stages of supply, are, particularly at the moment, you, you know, what you're seeing around Australia is that the ports are quite clogged, um, and, and that's not just us. That's all all manufacturers are experiencing that a frustrating level of um, delay is is uh, is what's what's around at the moment. Um, the flip side of the coin is that the production facility in South Africa is is actually uh, doing really well, and um, they're producing the cars as expected, when expected. Uh, and for us, that's a key part of it. The challenge is then getting them here. We, we, I guess Australia is not doing ourselves any favours at the moment uh, with, the, with the delays that we're suffering in ports because it means that shipping companies uh, are somewhat reluctant to continue to send ships our way because they're getting caught up in delays that are costing them money. So I don't think it's the production that's the issue. It's the, it's the supply chain at the moment that's probably going to be our biggest challenge. Look, Ryan, I'm, I've driven the car. I enjoyed the drive. And until we do a back-to-back test with the Ranger, it's hard to tell. But there's definitely some differences in the way it steers and the way that front end handles. It, it feels perhaps um, a little bit more confident on the road. How much detail did your engineers go into to tweak the suspension on the Amarok to make it at least feel a bit different to the Ranger? It's like everything that, that's in the car, you know, we, we have to prescribe the sorts of look, touch and feel that we want in, in our product. And, and uh, you know, you get that from the interior trim as well. You see that the, that the leather is of a high quality and the bolster in the seats is a type of material that we use in, in our products globally. So when it comes to specifying you know, how we can tune electromechanical steering and, and what sort of feel we want out of, out of the suspension, that sits in our our ballpark, and we have to prescribe those those things. So it's not surprising that the you know people will see a difference or feel a difference rather the way the way that they drive because you know we have different requirements and, and different expectations of how we want our cars to behave and uh, and, and steer and things like that. So that was important that, that we have the that I would say differentiation you know in in, in between the products and. Some things, that, like I say, that we, from the start we wanted to be non-negotiable in terms of how uh, the Amarok would be delivered and be perceived by our customers. And these are the types of things that I think are going to ensure that we maintain a, a customer base that has a true interest and belief that, that the car is um, living up to the expectations of the old one and is, is now the benchmark for the future as well. 
Can I take Fian's question just a, a little further there? I mean, there's loads of differences between the youths, right? But which one are you guys most proud of? One that I would say that as, as the guy that's probably got the responsibility to make sure that we're successful with this product in Australia. No pressure, Ryan. No pressure. No pressure. No, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but the one that I'm, I'm most proud of, you know, is that the team has been able to come up with a style and a design of the car that I believe is totally uh, independent and, and, and different and it makes us stand out as a, as a, a genuine player in the market um, and, and, and differentiates us. I would say that our, our look and feel of the car is definitely different and, and in my mind, superior uh, in the way that it will be perceived by customers. So I think in the past that there have been projects uh, between manufacturers that haven't been able to be distinguishable in a car park. You know, in this case, I think that not only have we, have we done that, but we've achieved a product that I would say lends itself to a, a different consumer base and potentially one that, uh, you know, leans into a more premium-looking and more a more premium-feel vehicle. Yeah, it certainly looks like it, it can happily live in a showroom next next to a Tiguan or next to a, you know, a, a, a late-model Golf GTI. It's, it's got that same sort of look and feel. Yeah, 100%. And that's what we're, that was what was set out to achieve at the start. And um, even the switch gear and, and, and things like that are, are, are practically identical in terms of their operation. So customers will that have um, you know, have a garage full of Volkswagen product will um, will definitely be, be able to uh, transition easily between the two cars. Ryan, we talked about this uh, during the launch recently. Um, you've got this unique model in the range, the Aventura with a 2.3-litre turbo petrol engine uh, borrowed from uh, the Ford Mustang, of all things. Now, the Ford Ranger doesn't get this engine in Australia, so this is a bit of a a bit of a wild card for you guys. Who do you see this model appealing to and, and was it difficult to get something really quite different from uh, from the Blue Oval like this? Was it was it difficult to get? No. What was the application for it in this market? We weren't quite sure, to be fair. You know, the ute market has typically been a, you know, a, a diesel-dominated territory for such a long time. Um, and, and yes, there are the, the bigger American trucks that are that are uh, have made some level of impact, but that that's kind of a different a different segment that we don't really play in. But what we see as the differentiation for for this vehicle and, and that and that engine type is that we believe that there could be a, a transitioning consumer base from say SUVs, where people have typically really wanted petrol power rather than having uh, diesel. Uh, you know, not having to go the diesel Bowser, not having, um, you know, issues that might come with uh, having a diesel vehicle in in, in the city um, market. These are the sorts of things that potentially a new customer base could consider in in that engine variant and potentially transition across from a from an SUV. Uh, and I guess the Australian consumers love the outdoors. They love adventure. They love towing. They love being the outback camping, those sorts of things. And, you know, if you're really doing city driving on a day-to-day basis, um, they've only had really an option for SUVs. So now having this this option in our range means that they can have that versatility of being able to, you know, put the boat on or the the, the caravan on a a weekend, still tow three-and-a-half tonne. It's the most powerful engine in its class now with three-and-a-half tonne towing capacity and then uh, reap all those rewards of, 
of of the weekend warrior status and you know have have uh fridges in the back of the ute and bikes and all the things and toys that you need kayaks and whatnot not compromise at all in that level but um still have a you know a daily driver during the week that that satisfies their needs there's obviously uh one thing that ford didn't want you to have and that's the uh the the V6 petrol from the Raptor, the the tough truck. But we discussed a little bit uh, about a a potential locally developed uh, tough truck for you guys, with a little help from uh, Walkinshaw Automotive Group. Can you talk a little bit about this? Um, you've obviously previously had the, uh, the W Series models with the previous generation Amarok. What's the thinking going forward with uh, with new Amarok? Yeah, there's been there's been a little bit of work done in this space already. It's something uh, that that both parties want to want to reconnect with and 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 run again with this series of, of Amarok. Um, there's energy and and um, desire on both sides to to make a new uh, a new Walkinshaw product. You know, we're still going through the I would say the early stages of what that could potentially look like. Um, we've got a Assess what the what the opportunity is. Which engine would be the one to really uh, focus on in that development space? Uh, and then, you know, what, where are we looking? Whether we, whether we're looking at off road or whether we're looking at the more, you know, GT style on road type performance, which is what we originally did with the um, the W five eighty S, and that was what was so successful for us at the start. So, you know, the, these discussions will be ongoing. Projects like this take um, you know a number of years to to finalise, but uh, I can assure you from, from, from my side, we've got uh, every interest in, in continuing that relationship, but there's work to be done, let's say. Ryan, the original Amarok was designed, developed from the ground up by Volkswagen in-house. Before you decided to go down that path of um, partnering up with another brand, was there any consideration for can we do this again all by ourselves? Yeah, there was consideration at headquarter level, uh, but the, you know the, the challenges uh, these days around developing a new car from scratch with the with the types of um, you know safety considerations that need to go into that car, uh, the homologation requirements, the the uh, etc. Especially that exist in in, um, in Europe, uh, just made the project untenable. So you know, realistically, it was partner up or or don't have a don't have a, a future for a for for a dual cab ute and you know from our perspective here in Australia it's the biggest segment it's one one in five cars is sold as a dual cab ute in Australia so uh, from that perspective we're we're delighted that that they went down this path because we wouldn't have had a car if if they didn't if they didn't go down that that way so um, yes it was considered in a ground up uh, you know start again but. You know, with these days, with the the development complexities around that, just made it um, you know made it impossible to consider realistically. The end result is superb, and we know there is a lot of interest. Ryan, to you and to the team at VW, we wish you well with it. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for thanks for having me. Some news now on this edition of the showroom. Said it at the top today that this is a part of a uh, an op-ed column that that um, that Sinkers has done, just in relation to uh, Tesla Model S uh, and Model X officially axed in Australia. And it seems on the surface like a case of simplifying production, but you feel like there's more to it than that, don't you? 
Look, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is definitely the case, but I think there's there's a number of things that factor into any decision um, when you when you axe a model. But Model S and Model X are both very expensive cars in this marketplace, and they need to compete against um, cars that are similarly priced from brands like Mercedes, Porsche, Audi, you know, EVs. So the initial attraction of maybe of some of these high-priced, high-end Tesla EVs has perhaps waned a little bit, and perhaps now it's sensibly from Tesla, you know, an admittance that they need to compete in the mass market, not in the prestige market. And they're doing very, very well with Model 3 and Model Y. So I'm thinking that maybe Model S, Model X, maybe the level of finish, the level of, I guess, amenity in the interiors aren't quite where you know those prestige badges are with EVs now about the same price. Okay. This one caught my attention and I love the thought of it. Celica Revival within the walls at Toyota is gathering momentum, it would seem. I'm not sure whether this story is true or whether we want it to be true. I want but, it to be true. <laughs> we want it to be true, don't we? I mean, you know, the, the affordable, sporty Celica, you know, maybe just slot between 86 and Supra. It's a pretty attractive idea for every petrol head out there. And did I see that the GR division, Gazoo Racing, you know, in that sort of tie-up, the thought is maybe an EV? Again, I don't know how the accuracy of that. I think we can almost guarantee it'll be a hybrid or there'll be a hybrid version. Certainly, Toyota need to do more in the EV space and, and an EV sports car may well be a bit of a brand leader for them. Interestingly, that brands like MG, Chinese brand MG, are going to be launching an EV sports car literally within the next couple of months. So it, it won't be the only EV sports car if, uh, if the sleeker turns up. I love the fact that the new president seems to have the same kind of passion that his predecessor, um, Akio Toyota, had. And that nameplate, that famous nameplate, was around from 1971 to 2006. would be awesome. If well, it... let's see if he's racing at Nürburgring because that's what Akio did. That's often the, the little um, prelude, isn't it? That's where we get a sense of what might be... Um... The prelude was a Honda, Greg. Uh, yes, no, I know that, Mike. Oh, sorry. Thank, oh, sorry. thank you. <laughs> now, let's digress from uh, Toyota, but segue to Lexus here. Teaser pics of the new Lexus GX are on the car sales side, and it looks a bit bit more macho, doesn't it? And maybe coming to Oz. It does. It looks very macho. And the interesting thing about this is GX is effectively a uh, gussied up Prado in the US. So, uh, we think GX will be added to the lineup here, and, and it's going to give us the best indication yet on what the next generation Prado is going to look like. So, a uh, very important car for Toyota. They sell shed loads. While we are talking um, teasers, there is a vid, uh, a new Nissan Patrol Warrior that uh, that caught our eye. Now, this project is kind of in conjunction with uh, a local engineering partner too in Premcar, and they've been churning out, what are they up to now? Like 5,000 Warrior Utes, I think they've made at their, their Melbourne facility. Yeah, so Warrior is is the really the full macho version of, of Nissan products re-engineered by Premcast. It's perhaps not match of Ranger Raptor, but it's pretty damn good. And we're all excited to see what they're going to do with uh, Patrol. It's been an on-again, off-again project, but it is definitely coming. I think we get to drive one of them or at least see it in the next uh, few weeks. So hopefully we can talk about it more in the future. Brilliant. Did I see it? Maybe I'm not sure if I got this right, but uh, it wasn't confirmed, but a 5.6-litre petrol V8 was expected as as uh, we go in you know the future here to, to kind of be retained? Look, definitely confirmed. That is the, that is the engine that comes in patrol. But what um, Premcar have been able to do is do some tweaks to the exhaust. Um, we know now it's going to have an AMG G-Wagon style side exhaust. 
the teaser, if you click on and have a listen to that, there's a decent old rumble in there. Carving up the tracks and sand dunes of uh, Victoria's big desert at sunset. Very, very nice. That was the very macho Mike Sinclair. If you have a need for some more news in between episodes, the only place to go is our site, of course, carsales.com.au. There are car comparos, news, videos, podcasts, of course, and you can get access to vehicle history and more to help you by Smarter. And check out Carpool as well while you're there for hacks, celebrity drives and lots of fun. It's all there on the website. We're nearly out of time. You've got to wrap over the knuckles today. You know why? We've got a strict policy on this podcast about not going too far into EV territory because we we reserve that for what's under the bonnet, our sister pod, which we love. There must be a whole lot of EV tragics out there because that podcast is pumping. So, yeah, if, if you haven't had a listen, um, it's not all about watts or volts. There's a fair bit of passion in there for EVs and some really interesting EV owners. It's EV's not a dirty word when it comes to performance either. I mean, you know, you can love cars and you can love batteries. I've had some firsts as well talking to everything from economists and more about the whole business. I've, I've had a real voyage or journey of discovery on that pod. It's been terrific. There's been so much misinformation Agreed. around EVs, to be honest. And and people people think they're, you know, they're either evangelists or they think it's the devil incarnate. And they're not. They're just it's another way of powering vehicles. It won't be the only way forever. Um, there'll be lots of different packaging and lots of different ways we power vehicles, but it's a really interesting space and some really good engineering going on. And that is the perfect way to end this episode. Thank you, mate. Thanks, mate. There you go. On behalf of Sinkers and all of the car sales team, I'm Greg Rust. We'll catch you next time. I'll see you in a racetrack somewhere. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Bye for now. Listener.